0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Kevin Giselle, who is the Managing Director of Company Solutions at Nasdaq Private Market. NPM is leading the way by bringing private companies, banks and brokers, stakeholders and investors together to transact in one marketplace. On today's show, we talk about how has the private markets changed over the years What is the history of the NASDAQ private market? How important is it for liquidity or a way for people to sell their shares for these companies that are staying private for so long for their employees and investors? And how are people, for lack of a better word, getting screwed on prices for shares of privately traded companies? This much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, I'm super excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm sitting here with Kevin Kitzel, who was introduced to me by Dan Angus, who is a lifetime friend of mine. We grew up together. And you know, I want to thank you, Dan, for making the introduction. And with that, going right into the interview, Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself, your history, your, your basketball story, how you know Dan, all this stuff. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, give us a little background for the interview.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sean. I appreciate you having me on. And I'll double down on, on thanking Dan. Dan is one of the one of the great connectors in this world, aside from having similar lives and that we have, we both have three young boys. Very enthusiastic about what we do. And so uh, Dan's a, a good buddy as well. So appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah. So it's a pretty wild ride, I guess, in the last 10 years. I've kind of fell into this market, frankly. I've been a long time in sales and in finance. And you know, a company called Second Market reached out to me in 2012 about an opportunity to help grow their sales and work on a couple of products that they were launching. Particularly around secondary trading, and so was really interested. Uh, met the team. It was a, a little bit of a risk at the time because you know I guess you would call Second Market was still somewhat of a a startup. You know, it was VC back uh, had been around for a for a few years, but we're kind of pivoting the model overall at Second Market. So when I joined Second Market, was evolving from really being this broker marketplace where. People were kind of just finding buyers for individuals in the secondary market, right? It all kind of spurred that. Like a a, you know a former employee at Facebook had reached out and was like, "Hey, I want to sell my shares. How do I do that?" And second market found a buyer. It kind of went from there. And I did a lot of the pre-IPO trading for like Facebook, LinkedIn, Zynga, Twitter, amongst others. But it was this very unfettered marketplace. It was you know people kind of refer to it as the Wild West. Trades were happening. There was like not a lot of disclosure transparency. Companies then were like, what is going on? We have these random people coming on our cap table, people that are selling. Like there was really no control in the market. And then so kind of post-2012, when the jobs act came out, enabling companies just to stay private longer. They we kind of looked at the market and said, look, we think this is going to be really viable, meaning companies are still going to want to provide some liquidity for their employees in the private markets, but it has to be more structured. And so we kind of pivoted and saying let's support the companies the issuers themselves and what they want to accomplish it's not going to be this one off just crazy marketplace anymore a more controlled marketplace is necessary and so you know lawyers that we were talking to were like look you should definitely do this. And also, there's gonna there's a need for technology in this market. Like there's gonna need be, needs, need to be something that's gonna help both the companies, the CFOs, the executive team facilitate these transactions and also their advisors, like their, their lawyers to help facilitate. And so we built this technology to streamline secondary transactions, more broad-based transactions for private companies. And So 2013 to 2015 really built that model at second market before then being acquired by NASDAQ private market in 2015, who had formed, I think in like late 2013, uh, as being a part of NASDAQ, and were competing with us on the secondary liquidity side at second market. We were small, but we, we knew we had built a good technology product. And as NASDAQ can do, they acquired us. We were about 30 or so people, I think, including our tech, and they rolled us into Nasdaq private market which was a really fun adventurous bumpy at times ride as far as you know coming from a small company into a very large institutional company and we're part of Nasdaq a wholly owned subsidiary from 2015 to 2021 before spinning out of Nasdaq in 2021 and so NASDAQ Private Market, as it stands today, is a private company still backed by NASDAQ. Obviously, we have their name. Or as someone uh, said at a panel I was on last week, they they kept our name. We're, they're still a majority investor in us, but we received outside investments from banks who have always been interested in what we're doing: Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, City Silicon Valley Bank, Allen and Co. And so they all took us private in 2021. So there's kind of this next chapter for us at uh, NASDAQ Private Market, or NPM, as we say, as a now a growing, scaling
0: private tech company. There's a lot there that... Yeah. Let's dive in. I mean, some of the initial questions I kind of have is, why would all these banks want to take you private? Why not keep it public? I'm also curious about going back to what was said at the very beginning of, you know, in 2012, just kind of this chaos of, Companies going wait who's on our cap table all this and kind of the the structure of what happens in a secondary transaction for right. our audience out there there's you know so much to dive in I'm not sure where you want to start
1: so I can start there it, it's so right you think about when you're trying to sell shares we we say right we refer we and I'm going to use this term right the secondary market because these are existing shares that someone else is buying from you it's no new issuance and so. For people that were working in private companies years ago, you know, the, one of the big things when you started a private tech company, a lot of times you're given equity. You're given equity, but then you're like, what does this even mean? And especially like 10, 12 years ago, when you were working at a lot of those companies, a lot of people just were never able to realize any of that equity. And so they started thinking, okay, this was typically like this very illiquid asset. And so that's what second market really was the pioneer in kind of changing that market altogether and creating a market for, again, what was traditionally illiquid assets. And so when a private company grows, brings on new investors, all the people that are investing as well as your rank and file employees are, are going to be on your cap table showing ownership of equity, you know, investing schedules, all those kinds of things. And so When people who are on your cap table, current employees, early investors, founders, former employees too, right who have left the company but still may hold some equity, when they go to sell their equity to someone else, there's going to be a transfer of ownership. And so if it's not in an organized fashion uh, or a structured fashion, I'm not saying it has to just be broad-based because we also do facilitate, which we'll talk about. Block sales for founders and executives outside the context of what we refer to as broad-based secondaries. But when you have that transfer of ownership, right, then you have this new buyer who now is on your cap table. And so, for a company too, it's important they don't also don't want these random buyers necessarily that are coming on their cap table. Like you typically want, you know, whether it's investors or others that are going to be long-standing on your cap table. And so, the market in of itself was this very like again. Wild West one-off market where just people were trying to sell some shares. People were buying it at again with very little disclosure and diligence. And so then that person sold their equity. And now Bob, the dentist in Orlando, has that ownership. And now they're on the company's cap table. And so the companies were like, we don't we can't do this anymore. And also there were then different bylaws written in and also like restricting certain transfers of companies to kind of just kind of get a harness on everything. And so that's when we kind of took that approach in 2012, 2013, pivot in the market and really say, okay, let's really focus on what the issuers want to do and, and making this a much more structured process in and of itself.
0: Okay. So structured process gives more information, I guess, to the the company who's on their cap table, but you know, the employees and everyone still want liquidity. So this yeah. solution is needed. How were they doing it before? You guys came along.
1: Yeah, it was again. It was it was kind of this one off marketplace, and there were a lot of bad actors in the market. Who, but you were just kind of looking out. You were trying to contact a broker shop to say, like, could you potentially help us find a buyer, or can you help me find a buyer for my equity? And okay, what's the price? Well, I'm, I'm not sure what it's worth technically, and so a lot a lot of people. Look, a lot of people made money, but a lot of people also got screwed in that market. And so it wasn't a sustainable market in and of itself long term. If this was going to be a growing market, like if you think about Sean, what we do in secondary liquidity, traditionally, again, the only way you'd be able to realize your equity in a company would be if you go public or through an MA transaction. And they finally, like secondary liquidity and private company liquidity is now this third viable option for people to be able to get liquidity along the way while you're at a private company, not cash out, right? That's not the idea. You don't, you're not cashing out everything. And we can again, we can talk about that as well, but company can set limits on how much folks can sell, when they can sell, and those kinds of things. But you're, you're enabling people to take some money off the table, release that pressure valve a little bit and pay for things like a down payment on a home. A, student loans, a car, whatever the case may be, it's really, really valuable now. And we hear it so much from CFOs and other executives in private companies who, when they are providing liquidity for their employees, they have those folks reach out to them to say, like, you have no idea how meaningful this was for me, what I was able to do with this. That's the really cool part about this business, right? Not that we're saving lives or anything, don't get me wrong, where you're able to help people, you know, live their lives the way they want to and be able to, again, the things they want to take care of their families and continue to, to grow and evolve.
0: Now, you mentioned CFOs there. What type of conversations do the CFOs have with employees? How does this... I would think a company that offers this versus doesn't, the employees... I mean, that's a great way to attract great talent to the company.
1: Sean, you you like took the words out of my mouth there. So you think about how this whole market really was born... The idea behind it. And again, this also, this mark, this, the, the idea of our secondary liquidity was a very apropos maybe that I'm on the podcast, like it was a very Silicon Valley centric thing, right? Silicon Valley was the first, you know, with all the tech companies and by and large, it's still, I think where we have a lion's share of, of our, of our private clients, but it's grown credibly throughout the US, but also internationally, the idea of. Getting some sort of liquidity while you're private is now in Europe and Latin America, Israel, certainly, and other places. But it's recruitment retention, Sean, right? It's a, an amazing way to recruit new talent and also an incredible way to retain your top talent. You think about, especially in the market and for a lot of tech companies, engineers and product and other things like that, which are, are so vital. They're also really competitive, meaning like they those folks have options, and so if you're someone who's interviewing at a private tech company, then you can say, "Look, this is a really cool opportunity, but I could also work at Apple." Or Google, which is also a really good company, right? They're a public company and I have these perks. I, you know, I have stock in the company. So by giving those folks some equity and giving them stake in the game, because that's when you're you're also given there's an empowerment behind that equity in a private company. When someone you're saying, look, we're giving you this equity in the company. And so as we grow and scale and you know eventually become profitable, <laughs> you know, your your equity is going to is going to ascend in value as well. And so it's a wonderful way to do that. And so for I'll give you a quick little tidbit on that. Ten years ago, again, this was not every company was doing this. There were like very few. Sonos was an early adopter to like liquidity. They had a very active secondary market. We, you know we ended up working with obviously a lot of large companies now who are public, Ubers and Lyft and others while they were private as well. But it was a very small subset of these, what we refer to right as unicorns today, because there weren't, frankly, right, nine, 10 years ago, there weren't even that many unicorns in the market, private companies who are worth a billion dollars or more. And so it wasn't a huge market yet. Year over year, though, it just continues to grow where just liquidity, again, in the private markets is now like a mainstream thing. And I'll say that we know that because we've heard from CFOs, GCs, CEOs, COOs, In their interview process now, when, again, they're interviewing to bring on new folks, people will flat out ask them, okay, do you provide liquidity? Not just, I know I'm getting equity in the company, but will you be able to give me a path potentially to sell some of my equity? And like that in and of itself is wild because no one asked that nine, 10 years ago. Now that's being asked in the interview process because people are more sophisticated now whether they worked at another tech company, or they have a friend right, or family member who also has worked at a tech company, and that company gave them an opportunity to sell at some point. The people interviewing now are saying, well,
0: wow, I want that too. With that, I guess a couple of questions there. Why couldn't the company itself internally provide liquidity why do they have to look for an outside market and how big does the company have to be for this to even be a viable option i mean i'm guessing that company down the street that's raising a half million dollars their seed round it's not possible but when does it get to that that line where it's like okay the company's now big enough to have this as an option
1: yeah it's a great question sean so you know it's not so i I think there's a couple metrics you don't have to be a unicorn, one, for us to work with you and, and engage with the company. And again, that's one of the reasons why we help founders and executives doing more direct secondary sales or block sales. Sometimes a company's not quite ready to do a broad-based liquidity program.
0: Kevin, quick question yeah. on that. Block sale. What's the yeah. size of a block sale?
1: Yeah, of course. So they can be $50,000, $100,000 up to several million. Typically, the mandates that we take on at Nasdaq Private Market are going to be a million or more. And also, again, we're not, our model right now isn't doing individual block sales for rank and file employees, which some companies do, by the way, and that there's merit in that. Our model, because we're a very institutional backed company, is more so doing blocks for investors and C suite and founders. And typically that range is going to be, or the minimum, I should say, is a million. I think like our sweet spot a lot of times is in that five to $15 million range for the block sales. But again, a company again.
0: You're, so, Kevin, yeah. quick question: That is a block sale, just for our audience. Is it the number of shares or the value of those shares that constitute as a block?
1: Yeah. So we say a block or direct secondary, more in that it's going to be one or maybe like a few individuals who are selling right in a block. So meaning when you get into the what we call broad-based liquidity, we refer to broad-based liquidity as like tender offers, or we run also like auctions and other type of broad-based programs. But it's typically a tender offer. Uh, and there are US rules behind the private tender offer. When you go... Out, and again, this is also up to a little bit of legal discretion on this. But typically, when you're going out to more than 10 individuals, that then constitutes a broad-based tender offer, where then you have to have an offer that's open for 20 business days at a minimum. And it's a much more structured approach in that sense. Whereas a block sale, if Sean, you or an individual or a founder at a company, or you and myself were founders and chairman at a company and wanted to sell each $5, $10 million together, that can be more what we call like a block capacity. It's a transaction direct between us and buyer or buyers. Again, for us, it's all institutional. Uh, so it's direct one-to-one. Or one to two, whatever the case may be. And so it doesn't need to have this kind of formal process where the transaction needs to be open for 20 business days and those kinds of things. So, yeah, that, that's kind of in terms of like the size. Again, getting back to your question, I do want to answer as far as for a company to on a broad based scale to want to provide liquidity. Look, frankly, they probably have had to have been around for like at least five years, right? And they, their employee base is starting to grow where you're like close to a, at least 100 employees. Because a lot of times, right, you're giving options uh, at those companies and you want those options to be able to mature or vest. And so you're not, again, to your point, you're typically not going to be like a, a seed or look, we, we did work with a few series A companies last year in 2021, but 2021 was just like a party for everyone. You know, valuations were crazy. Everyone was like, hey, we just raised $100 million. We're a unicorn. Like, let's cash out a little bit. This, this year, certainly a very different market. And also, 2021 was somewhat of an anomaly overall, but. But the idea that now, you know, when you're a private company, once you get that stage of you've been around for a fair amount, you've probably raised at least a Series B to C round, where your valuation's starting to get close to at least half a billion dollars. You're probably starting to think about, and you should start to think about liquidity in the private markets. And to your answer your your first question, I'm like, why wouldn't a company just you know act as the purchaser? They do sometimes. Companies sometimes say, you know what, we're going to just we want to do this as a benefit to our employees. We're going to set the rules and say, we're going to go out to our employees who have been here for two years or more and let them sell 20% of their vested equity, and we're going to buy up to $20 million. Some companies will do that. Some companies who have like a lot of cash in their balance sheet, which is a wonderful thing, can do that. Or right, a lot of times we see transactions happen on the heels of a primary financing. right? And so sometimes when a company raises a primary financing, they'll just allocate some of that money that they raise in the primary to buy shares back from their employees. Help clean up the cap table. The idea to bring though on to run more what we call third party, right? And third-party investor transactions is right, you're trying to bring on some new investors potentially, or some existing investors who didn't get the allocation they wanted in the primary and want more allocation can satisfy that through a secondary. But again, a great another tactic for a lot of growing scaling private companies is let's bring on the right strategic investors now. Via the secondary, we're now getting close. We just raised our Series D. We want to bring on the investors that we're going to want to keep on our cap table, and hopefully they stay on, you know, through the time we go public.
0: That was pretty interesting, right there. The people that weren't able to get potentially the allocation they wanted in previous rounds using the secondaries as that option is that where? Well, I guess a couple questions on that one. How are these people, or organizations, or investors? kind of finding out on your platform what's available. Also, since it is private, there's not much information to go on, right? How are they even kind of decide, making decisions internally? hey, this is something to go for, not unlike the public markets where there's so much information available.
1: Great questions too. So figure out what we do in the context of it. We're not this like a bulletin board where we're just like posting individual sales that thousands of buyers can potentially see, or like companies are just listing on our platform per se, where again, they're saying, hey, we want to run a secondary. Let's see if we can find buyers. When we engage with a company, and part of, I think the advantage of working with us at NPM is one, we just have a wealth of experience. Like We've been in the market the longest, we've done close to 650 transactions in the last decade. And so with that, right, we have won a ton of data and just a really experienced team overall. But we, we have two sides of the house, Sean. So you think about my side, the team I run is on what we call our company solution side. So company first, we're supporting the issuers while they grow in the private markets, while they're raising money and want to provide some liquidity. That's our focus. Our other side of the house is our capital markets team. And capital markets focuses on our investor, the buy side relationships. And so, because we've, and I'll be honest, it's a newer part of our business that really we've only had for the last four or five years. But now we've grown that bench of institutional investors because of what we've been doing in this market for so long. When we've been facilitating these broad based secondaries for private companies, those secondary investors who are coming in have gotten to know us. And so, we've onboarded them to our platform as buyers that we're able to leverage either for block sales or for broad-based company programs. And so, and by the way, those buyers constitute dedicated secondary funds, family offices, crossover, sovereign wealth, hedge fund. It's a range of institutional investors, but very savvy, sophisticated secondary investors who know the market really well, and typically also are investors that the companies would want to bring on their cap table. When a company engages with us, right? Like, as I mentioned in the beginning, like at the core of what we do, I mean, we say like we're a technology company. You can put us in also like the fintech category. We've created a really amazing technology product to help companies facilitate their broad based secondaries and data room and other types of things. But when a company comes to us, we're really acting as an advisor too, in the sense that they say, look, we potentially want to run a secondary. We think we may have some interest from existing investors or maybe a new investor but we'd love to leverage your bench of investors as well. And so that's where we can help them in bringing on new investors in a very structured process where the company controls the entire time what investors they want to bring on, right? So we'll let them see, hey, these investors are interested in your company. These 50, you go through and let us know which ones you're cool with or which ones maybe there's a conflict of interest, right? Maybe an investor who's invested in a competitor of yours you don't want. So you let us know which ones that you want to move forward with, and we'll help kind of act as that liaison between you and the potential investors to find the right fit. So if a company's saying we want to do a secondary at $20, $30 million, but we only want to bring on two or three investors, that's the process we'll run and help them run. So we'll help them set up investor calls. We'll ask the company and tell them, look, you're going to need to provide... You would ask this question, Sean, about disclosures. There's going to be some disclosures that are needed. Like there again, the market has come become such that for investors, right, to get a good idea on how to price your shares. You've raised a recent round, right, as a private company and a recent primary round. Typically you'll have a fresh price there, a fresh, you know, preferred financing price that an investor can kind of anchor their price to. Right now in the market, too, like we're seeing where investors are are coming in at on the block side pretty significant discounts for the company broad-based programs, not as much, we're seeing discounts in the range of like ten to fifteen percent off the last preferred round, which is very normal in the secondary market. But the, the investors want to need some disclosure. so they're going to need like financials, two years of financials, unaudited or audited, you know, summary cap table, um, you know, bylaws, risk risk factors. Typically, they're going to want like an investor deck or projections, right? If you're an, if you're a buyer as well, and if if that's not enough, too, if they say, look, we're interested. But we just want to talk to the executive team as well. We'll help set up those calls as well. So it's a very structured process in and of itself, where, again, buyers are going to have the necessary access and diligence. And the companies themselves are also going to work in tandem with those investors to provide that diligence to hopefully get the best possible price.
0: And that's interesting that they can really kind of pick who the investor still is, even on a secondary. So, I mean, just our last episode, previous one we had, Craig Allen from China, US, Oregon, they talked about Cifius some overseas investors to invest in some technology companies here. So do those, does a lot of overseas investors that really can't invest in some of these companies try to, or does everyone kind of have full disclosure on both sides, who, where the money's coming from, where the money's yeah, going?
1: Totally. Yeah. I think that's what's, what's happened. Like, um, there has to be that. That transparency is paramount in this market. Like, look, there, there are certainly a lot of overseas investors interested in the market here in the U.S. And by the way, we work with you know investors overseas, whether family offices or others who you know are very active in the secondary market. But there, there is an absolute need for transparency. Understanding, you know, who's coming on your cap table for the buyer. Understanding what I'm investing in this, in the company you know, again, to make sure that it's the right opportunity for for the investors, that it's a company that, again, you're hoping, uh, excuse me, as the issuer, you're hoping that you're going to bring on investors that are going to want to stay on your cap table long through hopefully an IPO as well. So the transparency and everything is is absolutely, it's necessary in this market right now, and it's necessary for it to continue to evolve overall and grow. It certainly has changed a lot over the last 10 years, again, where there, there wasn't nearly like, any disclosure information that was being shared you know ten years ago in the market. And so again, some people were not selling at great prices. Some investors were getting good deals. Now in and of itself, the idea is that there should be information for both sides, meaning the sellers and the buyers should have you know there, there should be symmetry of information to help in that transparency. So like when we run broad-based programs for companies, and again, in our platform, we house disclosures and all the diligence right in our platform for all of the sellers who are invited into the platform and are being offered right the chance to sell some of their their equity. All that information is there for them to view. And by the way, that same information is also shared with the buyers. It's typically the same information that we're sharing with sellers, we're sharing with the buyers, again, to create that transparency and the symmetry of information. I'll say the only outlier there probably is that you're not going to share like projections with your your employees, your rank and file. Typically, that's just going to only go to the, the potential investors, but your financials, right, your risk factors, bylaws, cap table, um, all those kinds of things are going to be shared with both sides. So it's creating this very, very transparent, uniform market.
0: How dynamic would you say that this market is? I'm sure over the last 10 years, it you know, liquidity and that it's just so much better, but From our audience that might only be used to seeing stuff on CNBC or or one of these, like how liquid is this? How how dynamic is it? Yeah,
1: it's super dynamic, and it's dynamic in the sense that, like, right now we're in a this is the most difficult market I've seen since we've been in. So I'll say it's great because again, because liquidity is more mainstream now, companies understand it more. There's still like a pretty healthy pipeline of companies that are running secondaries. But it's a really challenging market, again, because you—you you, how do you match the trade between whether it's a block sale or you know when you have a broad-based company who wants to run a secondary and they want to bring in new investors? It's all about price right now. And selling at a price as a com- at a company that you're happy with and that you're not taking too much of a haircut on and for the buyers, they want a good deal. They want and right now frankly it's a buyer's market in that sense because you have some buyers that are coming in and they're looking at it. because of what's happened in the public markets its certainly affected what's happened in the private markets you know valuations have certainly dropped for many private companies and so folks who want to sell on an individual basis or even companies who are looking to do a broad-based transaction and want that liquidity the buyers are saying okay well if you want it then we're willing to buy potentially but We're gonna buy at a pretty hefty discount to your last preferred round raise. Or if you don't have it raised around the last year or two, you know, based on all the information and financials, they're gonna be buying at a very attractive price for them. And so it's the buyer's market in that sense where they're really controlling. And for a while, we, you know, our capital markets team kind of called it like a buyer's strike because there just weren't that many buyers in the market. And the ones that were in the market, again, were coming in at such such significant discounts that it just created this quiet market overall, but just there weren't that many transactions going on. I think we've seen it pick up a little bit, especially now in Q4. It's a super, super dynamic market. And it will always be, I think, to a certain degree, because by and large, the companies that we interact with and that we work with, tech companies, a lot of enterprise software, but anything tech enabled. And tech companies tend to have really highs and then can kind of like... come crashing back down to earth to a certain degree. I mean, you've seen like what Instacart's valuation and others that have been slashed, you know, those companies are still have crazy valuations. But a lot of these companies who became unicorns even last year, now their valuations aren't there. They're not a billion dollars anymore. And so because of that dynamic aspect of your valuation, how much money you're raising in the private markets, primary financings, that all plays into the secondary market in general. And so I think again what we saw in 2021. I'll just say you know again we were running a lot of transactions for companies that were raising large primary rounds. And right again when they raise that primary round, there's a preferred price anchored to their shares to your shares. Buyers were coming in and buying at that price in the secondary market, which is really unique because if you think also think about the market, just to be a little technical, but when buyers, by and large, when investors are coming in and you're raising. Around and there's again that preferred price from your last primary round. As an investor, though, you're buying the common stock really. So, right, you think about it, the concept is as an investor last year, we're buying at the preferred price, but buying the common stock, or in some cases, premiums the last preferred round, which is like wild. And so it kind of created this, I think, well, in some ways, unrealistic expectations in the secondary market, where I think we came back down to earth this year where we're seeing these slight discounts in the second market, meaning investors now are coming in at a 10 to 15% discount from the last round and saying, we'll buy shares at price. That's very normal in the secondary market overall. Most people expect or know that if you're going to sell your shares, there's going to be a slight discount that you're going to have to
0: take. All right, Kevin, there's a lot of information there. and, And a lot of our audience, I think knows, but I think there is some that we might want to go a little bit, take a few steps back. Preferred, common, cap table, you know, for preference. Talk a little bit about just those definitions so that everyone can be on the same page.
1: Yeah, so like typically, right, your your preferred stock for early investors and others. There's just different rights you have and, and more preference as far as what you're going to be able, also be able to sell. Uh, in terms of like liquidity liquidity rates the typically right your your rank and file and everyone else are again you get a lot of options at, at, at a private company, and eventually when you can exercise those options at a certain point you're then going to sell what is the underlying common stock so it converts to common stock when most of the time when investors are coming in buying via a secondary, they're buying in essence common stock, so meaning like they're taking much more of a passive approach. Like they're not looking for like a board seat or anything like that. There are some instances where we do run secondaries, like strictly for preferred, meaning they're targeting 20, 30 preferred holders in the company. And there's an investor who wants to buy those preferred, those preferred shares. But by and large, it's common stock that's being traded in the private markets. And so that's where when even again, secondary buyers are coming in via secondaries, the stock that they're buying, again, after a primary financing round is based on the last preferred price, but they're really buying that common stock. And so again, they're not taking a board seat. It's a much more passive approach. And the whole idea there is just they want a larger stake in the company. They want to get in, they believe that's a great opportunity to get in. There's going to be a lot more growth. But that's again typically as you as a what we're seeing, what we see in the market when companies are providing broad-based liquidity, it's for a lot of folks who are given those options at the onset of their, their employment when they're first brought on. That have a certain vesting schedule and when they're vesting and when they go to sell them, what they're selling
0: is the underlying stock. All right. So now let's go to an employee or that early investor, someone that wants to sell their shares. What should they know? They should know that
1: there's a big market now for their shares. Um, you know, buy it, I mean, it's the truth. Like, and again, that's not everyone, right? It's it's not. You're not uh, as an employee. Like again, if you're just starting out at a company who's seed or Series A, you're probably not quite there yet. But there's a real market or there's real investor interest for your shares. But yeah, look, as you grow and you're at a company that's at their Series C, D, or later, there, there's like there's absolute appetite for your shares. And so I think for those folks to understand and know that one there are buyers out there that probably would be willing to buy your shares. I think the first and foremost thing you have to look for and where you're going to get that liquidity, most of the times is going to be through a company-sponsored program. So like as I mentioned, the broad-based programs that the companies are creating and setting all the rules and boundaries for. But I think, look, I don't think it's a bad thing to ask about, even in the interview process, or if you're an employee that's been at a private company for a few years. And proven yourself as a real asset in the company, and you have this equity now that's starting to vest. asking your executive team, like, hey, do you think we'll ever have the opportunity to sell something? I think there's, again, there's real empowerment there. And I think it's that's a question that I think that's fine to ask. I don't think you're going to really like put yourself in a precarious situation or in bad standing by any means with your executive team by simply asking that question. It's just, it's gotten to the point now where, again, people are more educated and, and sophisticated in this market and understand that there are avenues and paths that they can sell their shares. Again, you have to be careful though too, because there are, there are what we still refer to as bad actors out there who potentially will reach out to them and say, try to say, hey, look, we'd love to buy your shares... But that's that's typically not the approach that, that you want or you want to steer folks down because, again, in that type of scenario, there's probably not going to be as much information sharing. And by and large, we see that the employee is typically um, getting screwed.
0: Okay. Now, with that, other than maybe just price itself, are there any other ways that an employee could get screwed or where, where are the bad actors how do they take advantage? What, what are some of the stuff that you've might have seen? Leave out names or com- or anything like that, but yeah, of course. Any Any stories or scenarios?
1: I think Sean, honestly, it's it's price more, and more than anything, right? You think about if you if you have the if you have equity and you're looking to sell at the end of the day, right? You want to get cash. You want to get money again. You want to pay for something, whatever it is. You want to reinvest it somewhere else, whatever you want to do. So it's all about price as the employee. And you again, it's hard as If I'm like an individual employee, you think about it. Even like you, Sean, if we were like working at a at a startup or a private company that was raising money, like, look, I'm not just saying like uh, we're not sophisticated or smart enough to know that our shares are worth something. But even for us as individuals, how, how do we price it? Like, how do we know that it's, that it's a good deal that so and so who wants to buy my shares is willing to pay $2.10. Like, I don't know. Is, is that a good deal? Like, what if I could get more? Or maybe it isn't. You know. So that whole idea that you just, you just don't know, and there's not that transparency isn't there where you're not providing typically all that those disclosures to the investor. It's a very informal process where they're just going to say, look, and again, you may have to go back to your company. There may be restrictions on them. Some companies have outright restriction on transfer of sales, or some companies have what they refer to as rofer rights, right of first refusal, or the company themselves. If, a, if there's a buyer X out there who's going to buy at some price, you tell your company, "Look, I have this buyer who wants to buy my shares at this price." The company, based on that price, can say, "Well, we'll just buy them back for that then." Versus you selling, to it. and again, part of that is to protect yourself as a company, protect yourself, so not have to bring not not bring on all these random investors onto your cap table. But I think it's it, it all surrounds you know price, Sean. And as a buyer, right, you're like looking at this, like, look, maybe I can get this person or these individuals to sell at attractive price, and I can then hopefully. Make money off that in the year or two, and sell it for double or triple.
0: And then, Kevin, your guys can't be the only ones out there doing this. Who are, are some of the big competition? Who are the competitors? How, how does everyone differentiate themselves?
1: We're not the only one in the market, when we're the best in the market. You think about what we do, right? We, we kind of have a unique place in this market. One because we're backed by the institutions, and again, I think just the I think you asked this question, Sean, and didn't answer. I don't think like why the banks wanted to invest in us. Look, banks want to get involved in private companies at earlier stages, bottom line, right? They want to to have that access. And the one thing that we've had for years and have is like we have really great relationships with issuers in the private company landscape. And also the banks are helping us enhance our distribution channels. Meaning like when we have and are introducing capital to private companies where they want to leverage our investor bench, we can go out to our 300 and I don't know, 350 institutional investors to see if there's interest. But if there's not enough interest there, we can also then leverage our bank partners and they can go out to way, way more institutional investors for us as well. So that's a really powerful thing. And so as I've been saying, we're in a unique place in this market where we've been doing it for the longest and have the most transactions, have a wealth of data. We do the broad-based and we do the one-off block sales. There are, think of like a company that went public forge global, they're public now they focus really more on the, on the block sale capacity. Companies that typically focus more on the broad-based company outside of us are the cap table providers who they have your cap table. So they manage the, the equity plans. And so years ago, they decided after we were doing this, okay, if we have the, the cap tables, then if they want to run a secondary, then we should help them facilitate their secondary. And so they've built some technology around that I'll say there too, that the thing that we always say is like, for us, it's we're agnostic. Wherever your data lives, we can help ingest it into our platform. So if you're on a cap table like ShareWorks or work by Morgan Stanley or Carta, or it doesn't necessarily matter because we can take that data. We work with a lot of clients that have their cap tables there and get it on our platform to run the secondary. And I think the unique difference again with us is that we act much more as an advisor and a project manager throughout the process, as opposed to just being like this one-off technology component.
0: Now, are there any, I mean, we're about to wrap up. Is there any initiatives, any new products, anything that's being created right now that maybe that you could share with us or any stories that you could share?
1: There are some that I probably can't or, and some that I can't, um, but which are really exciting because some of this will be coming out throughout Early 2023 and and, and later 2023. We have a lot of different initiatives right now. You think about right, Sean, when we when we spun out of Nasdaq, we in essence that was what you would refer to as like we raised our series A. And so again, the idea is now to raise our series B and continue to scale and grow and grow headcount because like we're still a pretty small company that we make up for, I think, as far as lacking headcount per se, with just like really good experience and a great team that is alongside the the best technology product in the market, but you know, I think that the idea for us is that we want to create... We want to be really like the first and last trade for any private company. Meaning we want to capture the individual sales, the block sales, as well as the broad base, And, and we have the ability to do that. And so with our technology, we were, we're going to be creating something that's much more all-encompassing for individuals, for stakeholders, for investors, for companies, that they can access hopefully this all-in-one platform to be able to sell shares, to buy and those kinds of things, all again in a very buttoned up institutional sophisticated approach. But we look at this as being this is a market that is an amazing and a really powerful asset class that is still like we're still kind of in the early innings of figuring out. And this market is, we're not even really even touch the potential of it. And so having done this for 10 years, in some ways, it's like, man, it's been a long time. Like, I'm like, I'm like a dinosaur in the, in the secondary world, but it's also a really exciting time as far as where we are in the market and where we see there's a lot of need for transparency and for process to come in. I think that's where we can come in having that experience and also having the banks behind us is really meaningful because at the end of the day, like, I think they're going to power a lot of what's going to happen in the private markets.
0: One last question before wrapping up. With the evolution of the private markets, with everything that's happening, it sounds with the liquidity, the banks get involved, in where's going to be in the future, the differentiation line between a private company and a public company? Is it going to get more blurred? What are your thoughts of that for the next you know, five, 10 years?
1: Yeah, look, it, it already is. It's it's already blurred in the sense that like a lot of private companies now would be, you think about unicorns. Would be what was considered seven, eight, nine years ago mid-cap public companies, or even larger. That the idea that again, as a private company, there's a lot of advantages to staying private, not quarterly reporting, those kinds of things. And again, you, when you go public, a lot of times you you're going public because you need to raise money. Right, it's a wonderful way to market yourselves as a company. You can still do all those things in the private market now, and because there's so much capital that's flood of the private markets. Companies have the ability to raise really large amounts of capital and stay private for as long as they want, and so I think that that idea is going to continue. I think I don't know if it's changed, but I think like we looked at this a year or two ago, and like it, the average life cycle for like a private tech company is close to twelve years now, where companies are staying private. Whereas like years ago, IBMs and others of the world like were going public pretty pretty quickly, and again, there's there's still merit behind that. Again, we being backed by Nasdaq um, we have a wonderful relationship with them and so like last year when there was these frothy public markets frankly there was amazing private markets as well we're in a unique place again right now where for those companies that are not going public because of the market conditions because their valuation was slashed because they're waiting it out we're in a place where they're coming to us to say okay we're now not we're now not going public for the next 2 years and we need to figure out a liquidity path while we're private. We need to let some people sell. Our founders even want to take some money off the table. And so we're having a lot of those conversations with a lot of those companies who are have tabled their IPO, but want to be able to provide some liquidity for their for their shareholders, you know, the rank and file, as well as again for founders and some of their investors who want to be able to just take some money off the table right now before the actual IPO. All
0: right. And with that. Kevin, I want to thank you for your time on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. I also want to thank Dan Angus once again, who made this introduction. And you know, Kevin, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it?
1: Yeah, I'll say there's two things. I mean, so I'm happy to give out my personal email is uh, Kevin.gazelle G-S-E-L-L at npm.com and also www dot NASDAQ, private Market.com is our website with our new brand. And um, I think it's a pretty slick website overall. But any questions on this, feel free, to reach out. at people who contact me on a weekly basis at companies, at law firms, at tax advisory firms, just to ask questions about what's going on in the market.
0: Fantastic. All right. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I am a uh, investment banker, focused mergers, acquisition, growth capital. And if you have any questions, reach out to me, connect with me on the com. That's our website for the show. My LinkedIn is Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N. Uh, I'm that handsome you know, guy with, with no hair there. And um, with that, once again, I got to thank Dan and Kevin, I got to thank you for your time on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.